Hey there, this is Kevin Ferguson. I'm the producer for Bullseye. I wanted to say that we at NPR, we messed up. We made a change to our web servers that we didn't expect to have any effect on podcasts, and clearly we were wrong. It forced a bunch of episodes into NPR podcast feeds, resulting in downloads you didn't ask for. It also made it hard or impossible for you to find and listen to your favorite NPR podcasts. We are truly sorry for this. We fixed the root cause of the problem shortly after we discovered it, but it took a while for that fix to make it to all podcast apps. So if you unsubscribed from this show or any other NPR show, please take a minute to resubscribe. And if you're still having problems, go to npr.org help. We're taking steps to make sure nothing like this happens ever again. All right. So thanks for listening to that message. And we have a great show coming up for you. Here goes. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Mark Allen Stamity was born in a big city. The big city, really. Brooklyn, New York. His family moved out to Jersey when he was about three, which was a quieter place where his parents could work in peace and raise a family. His mother was a cartoonist, and his father was also a cartoonist. And so Mark grew up, and he became a cartoonist. A great one. He got jobs making comic strips for newspapers. Washington, a political strip which ran for many years, a few regular comics in the New York Review of Books, and MacDoodle Street, which he published in The Village Voice. MacDoodle Street was just released as an anthology collection. It's really remarkable. In MacDoodle Street, you see New York kind of the way a kid from just outside the city might, as a wild, bizarre, fantastic place. Overwhelming, but also endlessly fascinating and stimulating. Rhinos on the subway wearing fancy hats, cars shaped like sharks, and every corner of every panel filled with action. Anyway... All of that is to say, I am really glad to have Mark on Bullseye. Mark Allen Stamity, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's a, I'm happy to be here. I think you might be the first ever person who I've had on this show whose parents both had the same job that they did. Yeah. Both of your parents were cartoonists. Single panel gag cartoonists, yep. And so how is that even possible? That's oh, like barely even a job. It's kind of insane. It, there used to be a lot of magazines, though, and back when, and, and you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s. It was actually, you know, there was, the, they would, like my, my father would start out, um, he had a code on the back of each rough, they called them, the, you know, gag cartoons they would send out. He'd send out a batch of 12, and there was a code on the back where he had his name and address printed, and he would put dots, uh, uh, you know, that indicated all of, the, you know, where it had been already. And it would start at Saturday Evening Post, Look Magazine, Collier's, and it would go down through all these, like, a lot of magazines. But they, they died in the 60s, so that, that kind of... Um, that kind of, uh, that, you know, after that, it, it, it became a, a much more paltry kind of a business. But um, early on, you know, in the in early on, my my father was a gag cartoonist with um, Hank Ketchum before he created Dennis the Menace, and my my mother was friends with Alice, and I knew Dennis when I was a kid. But uh, 
<laughs> I mean, it's amazing to think that that that's a real human being to me. <laughs> yeah, that's that. That well, the story of that is is uh, Dennis was four, and one day Alice yelled upstairs to Hank, "Your son Dennis is a menace," and that's where it all started. Did they think of themselves as artists? Well, they studied. They went to art school. They they went to the Cincinnati Art Academy, and they you know they studied fine art. But my father knew. My my father was told by a doctor when he was fifteen in Cincinnati that um, he had a heart condition, and he and the bad advice of the time was uh, you should choose um, a sedentary profession. And my father, on the spot, I mean, the son of Greek restaurant owners and you know restauranteurs. On, on the spot, he decided, I'm going to be a cartoonist. And then he went to the art academy. He met my mother there. She was studying painting. She kept painting. Um, and so she was more the, a fine artist, printmaker, and a cartoonist. Uh, through. So, so that's, But my father started out with the notion of being a cartoonist, and that's what he really loved. I think there's a strip uh, either from MacDoodle Street, your new book of cartoons from the late 70s, or from its afterword, um, which is kind of about the process of, of making it, where someone compliments you on how funny the strip is. Yeah, that's in the addendum to uh, to the, Mac, the the new McDoodle Street book, and it's... Um which also is very nice. They put it in a hardcover, but and in the back, they asked me to do an addendum to tell why did McDoodle Street disappear um, and and never come back when it said it was going to come back. And uh, so I told I told the story of how I you know I started out gung ho. I was you know raring to go and and um, charging ahead and 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 you know loving it. And then as time got as time went on, I was writing a story narrative and I was also writing week to week and committed each week to what the story was that that um that it 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 got to be kind of it got to consume my life now i i still loved it and i did carry it through to the finish but part of what happened was you know i would i would do a strip and people would say oh that was so funny i love that that's i love it it's great you know whatever and i and i'd think Funny? What? What? You know, how did I do that? <laughs> what? How do? How am I going to be funny again? You know what happens when the you know the next one? If it's not funny, they'll turn on me. And um, so I just kind of had that. Um, I, I kind of lived with that um, kind of a pressure that um, that you know over time, doing like I said as a continuing story. I I realized that um, that I, I wouldn't go on in that way to do to do cartooning and uh, and I had to over time get used to the idea that gosh I might write a bad joke sometime and um, I'm gonna have to live with it. It seems like it is a book and a strip about a particular time and place. Can you describe that time and place for those of us who weren't there? Well, I lived on MacDougall Street between 3rd and Bleecker uh, from 1968 to 1990, 22 years. Uh, for some period, Bob Dylan lived like a block away, although I only saw him around there once. Um, it, you know, it was a world there, uh, you know, of um, cafes and uh, and uh, uh, souvlaki places and falafel places and uh, and young people walking around with guitars on their back and and um, it was a wonderful world to to be in. And I'd also spent a certain amount of time in my uh, earlier years when I came to art school, et cetera. 
um, hanging around people that had maybe interesting minds. I mean, so, you know, some of them we called street people, I guess, in those days. But uh, people who, um, uh, you know, I used to have conversations, listen a lot to how the, the minds of uh, maybe um, off the main track uh, thinkers uh, thought and um I, I don't know. It's a beautiful, crazy, insane kind of a world. And, and um, so I wanted to depict the feel of it. And I, you know, I was born in Brooklyn, but when I was three, we moved to the Jersey Shore. Um, uh, oh, yeah. And, and, you know, so I, when I was 18, I came to New York to go to Cooper Union Art School. And um, I, I just was always drawn to the city, to the, to the energy of the city, the complexity of the city, the, just everything happening all, all at once. And, and um, so I just um, I was kind of uh, filled with that world. And I, 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 wanted it to, I wanted to put it into my comic strip. And, um, and, and I did. Did you ever just walk around when I, you were young and in New York? Well, I walked. That was a, actually in my in my years, especially in art school, but also after that, um, a lot of what I did was I, I used to take long walks at night. And we had a, a teacher in Cooper Union named Ben Cunningham. He was a um, an op artist, and he uh, he would call himself a visual voluptuary, and I kind of took that to heart. I, w- I would say set off around maybe 11 o'clock at night. I'd walk till maybe three in the morning and I would just kind of absorb things as if there was a kind of, um, it was, I, I thought of it as my eyes were and brain were kind of like tools and my, uh, my heart center was kind of like soft clay and I was kind of taking any, in, in everything to imprint, imprint in me and like fossils. And I didn't really know where it was headed, but I was, I found it very compelling, um, taking those walks. Uh, so, so I would, I would allow things to, I would allow myself to be guided by just um, a kind of intuitive sense of something holding me, like, like a, like a, just the color of something, the, the light reflecting the, the, and also, you know, people, just everything. I just, I just was like soaking it all in and not really knowing um, where it was headed, and but I trusted the feeling again, you know. Um, I'd like my work to uh, to come from a kind of mysterious place, and and uh, in those years of, especially the, those earlier years of walking and absorbing, I was just taking in kind of energy that I that I eventually put into my work. So when you finished MacDoodle Street, your plan was you you've been working on it for a couple of years, and your plan was to take a break from it. What happened? So I um, I was going to take off five weeks and try to come charging back, and um, and and so I finished all the um, for about two weeks of that five weeks I was planning on taking. I did the cover, the title page, all the all the extra matter for the for it to be a book because I'd had a book contract since like the tenth week of the uh, the strip. Publishers had come to me, and um, so. The very on, on September twelfth, nineteen seventy nine, between three and four p.m., exactly when I was delivering all the artwork from McDoodle Street to the book publisher, my father died. Like right in that little space, and and it always felt to me like he'd waited till exactly the moment. I mean, I mean, who knows? It just felt like it was we were kind of invisibly connected because I was in a state of toward the especially in the later part of working on. 
McDoodle Street, there was a tension about, you know, wanting to have it come out right, wanting, and, and you know, there's a sort of tension when you work on a project. And when I delivered that work, I, you know, it, it, um, it, it just was like a big weight lifted off of me. I, I was happy with what I'd done. I felt this just kind of, you know, wonderful elation that, that we, you know, tend to feel if we finish a big project and we're happy with it. And when I got home, I got the phone call that my father had died. And, it, it, and the feeling I'd had when everything lifted was, well, now I'm ready to deal with the next thing. It turned out the next thing was that my father died. And, and that was, a, you know, I was an only child. I was very close to him. So it, it was a lot to deal with. And it, you know, it put me in a, another zone. But if he had died, you know, a week earlier, I would have been, you know, caught up in this thing and not finished and not, not really ready. So, um, but anyway, that, that's how it happened. Where did it leave you when he died? Um, where did it leave me? It was lost. I, I just felt really, um, I, I didn't, you know, I, I, I didn't feel like I could do McDoodle Street anymore, though I did, I did try periodically to do it, but it just felt very tense to me. I went through a period of about six months where I just didn't know, you know, I, I just was lost. And then what happened was um, one night I was at the School of Visual Arts at a panel discussion of illustrators and the, as, it, as it was progressing, I, I mindlessly pulled out a sketch pad. I always have a sketch pad with me. I pulled out a, a, um, a rapidograph pen. I opened one page, and I just did this mindless doodle until, I, until, I was, until it felt like it was finished. I didn't really think about it. And then I, um, I flipped the page, kind of half thinking, and I did another doodle. And then when, I was, when that was sort of done, I flipped the page. And I kept doing I did about 15 of them. And then finally, um, uh, when, the, when the talk was over, I, I, I realized that for the first time in six months, like, I had enjoyed drawing. I had enjoyed doing my work. So um, I, I went home, and I looked at all my struggles to do McDoodle Street, and... Um, and and I they just felt like knots, and I, I just set them aside. And I took out a, a nine by twelve Bristol pad, and um, rapidograph. And I said to myself, I'm going to do a comic strip with one one thought in mind. I'm I I don't care if it's funny. I don't care if anybody understands it. I don't care if anybody ever sees it. I just want to enjoy doing it. So I, I did this strip that just went where it went, um, and uh, and when I was done, I, 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 I was happy. I don't know. I, so then I made another one and another one. It, it began, you know, the beginning of it was very, um, I began with this, it said, um, yim yam hum sum govel govel goo. That's how, it, that's how it started, and I kind of drew a half of a figure and whatever, but gradually something started coming through, and... Um, and I did, so I did three that night, and then I just started doing them for myself over time. And I had about fifty of them. I'd carry them around in my bag, and um, and and then uh, I didn't show them to anybody. I didn't want anybody to make me self-conscious. I didn't want to. I just I just was enjoying doing them. But one night I showed them to a woman I was dating, and she she surprisingly she loved them. And then and then I showed them. I ran into a voice um, a copy editor. And she loved them, and she said, you should show these to the editor. And I, so I went to see David, the editor, and he said, these are great. When do you want to come back? And, and, that's, uh, and that's what happened. 
What do you think changed about your approach that uh, allowed you to feel that way about drawing? Well, you know, I think that um, you you really have to trust yourself and you have to take a risk. It, you know, if, if I'm sitting there concerned about what is anybody going to think, or if I'm sitting there um, concerned about, you know, some preconception of what, I, of what I'm doing, I, I, in, a, in, a, in some way I lose my unconscious. And um, I think a lot of what those strips were about was kind of employing my unconscious because I would just kind of allow myself to get into a zone and allow myself to surprise myself and allow, allow myself to not wear, worry where anything was headed. And, you know, our unconscious is really our resource. You know, if you, if you, if you tighten up on that and if you approach that with, you know, preconceptions, you can kind of shut it down. And, uh, and, and you can shut it down with all kinds of notions, you know, like... Um, like, you know, what is what is this person going to think of this or whatever it is, you know? And, and um, so so in that period, I just said to hell with it. You know, this is this is who I am. This is what I'm this is what I'm doing. And 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 I don't understand it completely because, you know, I like to think of life in some way. The creative process is kind of, you know, mystical and magical and, you know, spiritual even, you know, just and and. Um, that there's something that's kind of, um, you know, beyond um, beyond just sort of the 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 mere you know meat and potatoes physical of life or whatever. That there's some kind of a um, magic I think that we seek in the arts, and so I was trying to allow that to happen. And so so it was about kind of just allowing myself into a zone and just allowing that zone to take me. And, 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 you know, really allow forth my inner resources, not judging and then, you know, judging later, but allowing, allowing it to, you know, just happen. And, and it was a great, anyway, that really, um, that really helped me to be able to continue forward. Um, when those things were being published, um, I wasn't so worried every, every week about what people might think. As a matter of fact, when I get negative reactions, um, I, I, I understood that was part of the exercise is to just realize everybody is not going to love everything I do. There's all kind of people in the world. Some people will love it. Some people will hate it. Some people think I'm smart. Some people think I'm stupid. Some people think I'm funny. Some people think I'm corny. And that all, that all is, you know, not, that's not the thing that should be, uh, in my mind when I'm, when I'm trying to come up with something, uh, creatively. After a quick break, we'll wrap up with Mark Allen Stamity. Please stay with us. Still to come, MacDoodle Street, great. My favorite book of his, a children's picture book called Who Needs Donuts? Oh, man, I love Who Needs Donuts so much. I'll talk to him about it in just a second. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. In 1980, with a few thousand dollars in used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company, one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at sierranevada.com. 
We're back with a new season of Rough Translation. Yeah. And this time, we are following people who break the rules. I mean, lying is part of the business. <laughs> In my opinion, the best revenge against ISIS is to be humane. Am I supposed to punch her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. New episodes every other Wednesday. Subscribe. Thanks so much to the over 28,000 members who joined or upgraded during the 2019 Max Fund Drive and to all of our monthly members. To celebrate hitting our goal this year, we're putting the 2019 Max Fund Drive pins on sale for all $10 and up monthly members. As in past years, you'll be able to get some pins and support a great cause at the same time. The proceeds from this year's sale will support the National Court Appointed Special Advocates Association. National CASA does amazing work for children and youth through a national network of 950 member programs. We are proud to be able to support them. The pin sale will run from April 29th until May 10th. And if you're a $10 and up monthly member, your personalized code is waiting in your inbox right now. For more details, you can head over to MaximumFun.org slash pins. And once again, thank, thank you. you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Mark Allen Stamaday. He's a cartoonist and writer. His latest book, MacDoodle Street, compiles his classic comic strip series about New York City. It's out now. I have three kids who are seven, five, and two. And so there are a lot of picture books in my house. And I am not that into many of them. Um, maybe because I'm an adult or maybe because I'm a snob or something. I don't know. You know, but a lot of them I'm like, eh, this isn't that, this is not that great. This is cute, but nothing much more than that. And uh, there are some that were favorites of my childhood that I still love and have found a renewed love for as an adult. I mean, every Maury Sendak book, you know, some of the William Steig books, The Oxcart Man. I don't know if you've read The Oxcart Man. It sounds Gort. familiar. So, I don't know if I know. Is that is that Steig or who is that? Do, it's I, Donald Hall, the, the poet Donald Hall. You know, I don't know that, I guess. I, I mean, it sounds familiar, but... Yeah, I mean, Tar Beach by Faith Ringgold. I know. There's, I definitely know Tar Beach. Beautiful artwork. Yeah, there, there's some real beauties that I remember from my childhood, but one book that I didn't have in my life as a child that I have come to love really deeply through reading uh, to my children is a book that you wrote as a young man called Who Needs Donuts? Yep. <laughs> and I think it is like the one kid's picture book that I have discovered as an adult that I find as moving and powerful as any of those books that spoke to me as a kid. Oh, thank you. And it's basically... <laughs> It's about it's a story about a suburban kid who moves to the city to collect donuts. Um, and I, you know it's it's a little difficult to describe the, the plot beyond that, but can you tell me a little bit about how this story of this strange thing came to you? Yeah, it was uh, well, I was I was um, about second year in Cooper Union. And I always had a sketchbook with me. I told you I look, took long walks at night, and I paid a lot of attention to what we, you know, street people, everybody around me. I'd go into places to watch kind of unusual people late at night. And there was a, a Bickford's coffee shop on 23rd and 3rd on the corner. It was a counter, uh, just a, a, a kind of weaving counter. And, um, and it was um, open all night. 
And so all these kind of characters would come in there at night and, and, uh, and I would sit there and watch them and draw them and, you know, make notes. And, um, one night I walked in there about 11 o'clock, sat down. There was like this sad old woman or this old woman that looked like she was asleep across the counter and she barely moved for quite a while. And at some point, a man in a, in a suit and tie and overcoat came in and he said, um, he wanted two cups of coffee to go. And the waitress said, would you like donuts with your coffee? And the man said, no, thank you. And at that point, suddenly, the sad old woman lifted up her head, pointed at the plastic light fi fixture on the ceiling and said, that's right, who needs donuts when you've got love? So I wrote that down. And I went home. I was living in a boarding house, um, Calvary Episcopal Church at that time. It was a boarding house. It, uh, you didn't have to be religious to be there. And, uh, and so it was 20 men and 20 women. I had a room. I put up on the wall. I had this big sign. That's right. Who needs donuts when you've got love? And people would come into my room and they'd see that sign. They'd say, oh, that's funny. So a couple of years later, two or three, well, I was out of art school. I had done my first book, Yellow, Yellow. I, uh, it was written by Frank Ash, A-S-C-H. And um, uh, he, he had started publishing kids' books when we were in school. And I illustrated that somewhat in the style that Who Needs Donuts uh, uh, was, was done in. And, uh, but th this was before Who Needs Donuts. And that actually is being reprinted by um, Drawn in Quarterly this year, too. But anyway... Um, so I, I had done Yellow Yellow, and, and, I, and I wanted to um, write my own book. And I had, you know, an editor I could take it to. And so um, I, I, I wrote a f couple of really bad stories. And then, I, and then one day I was looking around my apartment. I said, I want to write a story about something I care about. And I, I saw, and I had that sign on my wall on McDougal Street. And I said, um, I want to make a book that, that memorializes this lady saying this the old the old the sad old woman saying this statement so that's basically where and 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 then the book is basically about love of the city the intensity of the city city energy so there's a lot of you know kind of the absurdity and crazy details busy details of the city and then there is that sad old woman i i i, I wanted to make her famous for that for that you know poignant line that she said in that um in that Bickford's coffee shop. And of course, um, Sam, who's the hero of the book, meets Mr. Bickford. Mr. Bickford, I changed the spelling, but um, is named after the Bickfords. And actually, the license plate on Mr. Bickford's wagon is the address of that Bickford's coffee shop. I think there are so few children's books, too, that allow for the kind of magic that kids are capable of accepting as a matter of course. Yeah, well, kids, I mean, the, 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 I mean, I just remember, I remember my mind as a, as a child, um, I mean, just, the, I don't know, the things that would happen in my mind spontaneously, um, they, uh, it, well, it makes me think of, um, you know, Picasso's notion, I, I, I believe, I believe I have this right about Picasso, you know, he's, as an as an adult, as a sophisticated guy who could, you know, draw like Ong, you know, or Ingress Ong, anyway, David, but but he but he um, he sought to always find the spirit of of a child in his work. You know, that's once once you've got your sophistication, 
you know, you, you then then you still want to go back to that spirit that the you know of of that that we have as a child. I feel like I I can often feel that in your illustration and in the illustrations in MacDoodle Street, particularly like there is a page in towards the end of the run of the strip that is just one frame that just says sometimes a comic strip likes to hang out in the park. Yes. Yes. I mean, maybe that was just a week when you didn't have a story idea. <laughs> um, it, <laughs> it was, a, I, well, it was kind of a breather. Yeah. And, and, but it was also, you know, the comic stri- in McDoodle street, the comic strip is essentially becomes a character in the comic strip. So the comic strip is kind of its own organism and it can take many forms. And so it, you know, at one point the comic strip goes out and gets drunk. At another point, the comic strip takes an inventory of its characters. And in this case, the comic strip goes wandering around, um, you know, and sits in the park. And there's, I mean, the illustration is like typically of your illustrations, absurdly dense with people and things that are human-like. There is a man with a horse's head roller skating and there is a guy playing acoustic guitar in the fountain, in yep. the fountain. <laughs> well, I spent a lot of time in Washington Square Park. You know, where I lived on McDougal Street was like a block and a half away. So I, 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 um, I knew that park very well. <laughs> a, gra- a graffito that just says some type of graffiti. <laughs> <laughs> right. But like there, there is this, um, there is this feeling of like overflowing that in part feels like it is reflective of this place that what that is full of people and full of energy and action and all of those things but also to some extent is like a way of looking at the world like i'm going to draw one more pigeon smoking a pipe Mm-hmm. Because wouldn't that be great <laughs> to add that in there? <laughs> Here's a baby on a skateboard. Yeah. There's actually a baby on a skateboard in this <laughs> picture. <laughs> it's all about conveying what the city, you know. When when I was when I was taking those long walks at night, and I mean, one of the best. If you, you know, if you come to New York and you, you know you're a tourist or whatever. You know, you can go to all the sites and get on the bus and whatever, but the best thing to do is just walk around and take it all in. And, and you know, those 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 long walks at night from the, my early years in the city, um, like I say, it was about a feeling, and I was just entranced in a way, or just, just you know, and, and, and the, you know, the feeling itself, I felt like it was leading me somewhere. But it, but at the same time, you know, I mean, well, one essentially where it led me in my work is I wanted to put that feeling into the page, into the into the work. You know, the the, the, the I wanted to try to get that experience into the paper. Mark, I'm so grateful to you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was so great to get to talk to you. It was great to talk to you, and I really appreciate your your interviewing me, and I've enjoyed it immensely. Mark Allen Stamity, everyone. His new book, MacDoodle Street, is out now. It is such a pleasure to read uh, a totally fascinating picture of of a fascinating world at a fascinating time. Also, this is the honest truth. Uh, When you are a parent of elementary school-aged children, uh, as I am, 
you go to a lot of birthday parties and you always forget to buy a present. So my actual plan for dealing with this was going on a popular bookseller's website and buying a stack of copies of Who Needs Donuts. Every kid gets Who Needs Donuts. That's how much I love Who Needs Donuts. So many parents have thanked me for Who Needs Donuts. It is such a great book. Go, go, go get that book too. Both of these books, delights. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. You know, in recent years, uh, uh, we've been in this space for, whoa, wow, seven years, something like that. But in, in recent years, there has been a big uptick in people living on the streets in our neighborhood. We have a neighbor called Art Division. They do uh, visual arts education for um, teenagers here in the neighborhood. And every year, uh, their students and staff get together to distribute clean socks uh, to folks who live in our neighborhood but don't have homes. And so we're hosting a sock drive. If you're interested in sending some clean socks to us, we'll get them to folks who need them in our neighborhood. You can go to MaximumFun.org slash socks for the information. It's MaximumFun.org slash socks. We're also going to be providing a, a bunch of socks. I think we got 125 on the way, 125 pairs. Um, but yeah, be part of it and uh, help these teens uh, help folks in our neighborhood who, who need a hand. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. Our YouTube channel is run by the great Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by DJW, our friend Dan Wally. Our thanks to him for sharing it with us. He has a collection of some of his favorite beats that he's made for the show on Bandcamp. Just look for Dan Wally, DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And before you go, there are decades of archives of this show. Almost decades. Decade and almost another decade. You can find them all at MaximumFun.org. You can find the last few years' worth of shows on our YouTube channel, broken up by interview and segment. So if you want to share them on uh, social media or just email them to a friend, you can find them by searching for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on YouTube. Uh, we also share them on Facebook and on Twitter, where we are at Bullseye. I am at Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.